This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Jacobs School of Engineering, to the UC San Diego campus, to Franklin Antonio Hall, to the Bob Kahn Executive Outreach Center, and to this special, special roundtable discussion with our wonderful, wonderful guest, Professor Carver Mead. My name is Al Pisano. I'm the Dean of Engineering here. Uh, I've been participating in the Kyoto Prize, hosting the Technology Laureate for several years. And believe me, uh, Dr. Mead, I am so honored, Professor Mead, so honored to be helping uh, this afternoon with this as well. So it's a very simple format. Uh, I want to say that uh, we have given everyone a QR code so you can submit questions. Uh, Many people have already submitted questions. Andrew Kong here has the tablet where they appear, and of course, if three questions sound alike, we'll ask it once, not three times. All right, now to the formal opening of the program. Uh, My job here is very, very simple. Uh, Aside from thanking Dr. Mead again for spending some time with us, uh, my job is to introduce our moderator, Professor Andrew Kong. Uh, Andrew Kong is a distinguished professor of computer science and engineering and electrical and computer engineering. But better yet, he's a UC San Diego alum. All right, that's the part I like. Uh, Dr. Kong holds the endowed chair in high-performance computing. He heads up UC San Diego's VLSI CAD lab, and he's on the executive committee of the Marco Design and... I'm sorry? That's about 12 years old. Okay, so, all right, so let me correct myself. When, when Professor Kong was only 12 years old, he had already reached the executive committee of the Marco Design and System and, and, and drove the uh, roadmap for international technology of semiconductors. So I'm much impressed. At 12, I wasn't doing that. All silliness aside, without any further ado, I turn it over to Andrew Kong. Wow. Thank you very much, Dean Pisano. No, no. So, I mean, welcome to this roundtable. It's nominally on the VLSI revolution, Echoes and Futures, um, hosted by the Jacobs School as part of the co-sponsorship of the Kyoto Prize Symposium. So we're here to honor and learn from this year's laureate, Carver Mead. Um, The Kyoto Prize was awarded for his pioneering contributions that gave rise to what we look back on as the the VLSI revolution. I see design methodology, design automation as a discipline and an industry. The, The utterly foundational separation of concerns between design and manufacturing and how VLSI design has been taught to generations of chip designers. And we also have two luminaries who also need really no introduction. John Smee is Senior VP of Engineering and Global Head of Wireless Research at Qualcomm. He oversees all of the 5G, 6G, and Wi-Fi R&D projects, including systems design, standards contributions, and advanced radio, hardware, and software research testbeds, and technology trials. He's been with Qualcomm since 2000, holds 
over 200 U.S. patents and leads Qualcomm's academic collaboration programs across many fields. Sanjay Jha is co-founder and co-managing partner of Snowcloud Capital. I think we all know he spent 14 years at Qualcomm where he was the chief operating officer and president of Qualcomm CDMA Technologies. He has been CEO and chairman of Motorola Mobility and then CEO of Global Foundries. So let's please welcome all three of these gentlemen. So I'll basically toss out these, I'll lob these softballs out there and let, let these folks just take a whack. So um, the first question that we'll start off with is, especially for the younger folks, I mean, what do you see as exciting in semiconductors? When you look out 20 plus years into the future, what makes you excited and you know, thrilled to, to see happening? Is Carver, or well, I'd I'd like to hear what the people who are doing it uh, see, and then I can share any insights that I might have. I, I'm you know I'm not doing that anymore, and, and so uh, you have a much more uh, current view of of what's going on than I do. So I, I'd love to hear your your take on that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I'll, I'll certainly give a few opening comments on it. And what's interesting then is when we look at the design targets, the KPIs, it's an interesting thing of, of targeting different things that are originally was about integration and everything being part of one big chip. And then the realization of uh, the, the role of the application. You know, so how are you designing for automotive? You know, think of a, a very powerful car that's doing more and more functionality. It's going to be on the road for 10, 15, 20 years, so you need to design in a lot of interesting long-term thoughts about what you might want, what software you might want to be running 10 years from now. And then you go all the way to uh, low-power IoT and even going to as far as ambient IoT, so super low-power, super low-complexity. It's almost ambient. It's doing energy harvesting. So this kind of reality, whether you're looking at at very large scale or very low-cost, low-power, or whether you're looking at a cloud data center versus something that's purely mobile, so I think one of the most exciting things is, is then the use cases are changing significantly. How you design the hardware targets in terms of what are you focused on? Um, is it energy efficiency? Um, is it the overall power consumption? The role, the, obviously, the AUC matters in terms of the cost of the, the product. But at the same time, you're trying to solve almost um, continually evolving problems, but you have a much more powerful tool chain, right? So we all saw the exciting news with ChatGPT and the ability to have new types of AI algorithms. And I think for the, the next generation of students entering the field, it's really about how do you combine these new tools with these new targets? Uh, thank you. Um, uh, first of all, uh, it's great to meet you, uh, Dr. Mead. Um, before I get going, there are not very often that I find myself in a room with people who have created more than a trillion dollar industry. There, there is wireless and there is semiconductor. And I, I think that it's worth noting that we have two people present here who have created more than, uh, each one of them, more than trillion dollar industry. And, and, and I, I think that's, that's remarkable. I, I, I also see we have Charlie Persico. One of the things that has really changed, I think, 
the way we communicate is the use of CMOS for uh, RF. It's really driven. I, I remember when cell phones had three, five materials in every single component. If you wanted a mixer, you have to have, if you wanted linearity, the only way you could do that was three, five material. And the dynamic range needed was about 100 dB, 110 dB, and it, it could not be done. And, and I, I see Charlie. I'm, I'm, Charlie uh, was, I, I wouldn't say single-handedly, but certainly he led the organization that created uh, over 10 billion dollar of industry at Qualcomm. So it's worth acknowledging that there are some very successful folks in the room. Thinking about what um, is uh, where VLSI is headed next, I see uh, further evolution in RF as we go to um, up to 128 gig of uh, communication, gigahertz uh, frequency for communication. Then I see optical as we go to uh, you know, 300 nanometers to 800 nanometers, and then uh, oh, actually 1.5 micron worth of uh, free, uh, worth bandwidth. So I see mag- uh, I see RF evolving further. Um, I, it, but particularly with radar, particularly with uh, sensing in an autonomous environment, I see um, optical. The, the whole optical computing field is just getting started. And I, I think that's really exciting. And we know that if optical is going to take off, it'll have to be on the back of CMOS. Now, you can't generate light from CMOS easily. You'll have to have some hybrid 3.5 there. But I, I think that most of the processing will have to be done in CMOS for it to be scalable. So the, the RF and optical. Third thing I would say is that um, I think all the displays will turn into gallium nitride uh, micro-LEDs. So you will have acres of silicon, square kilometers of silicon being shipped as displays here very shortly as we go towards gallium nitride. Then uh, you're, you're now seeing digital control of all motors. So silicon carbide becomes very, very important because you have to source um, up to, I don't know, 500 amp of current and control that current in a, in a, a pretty uh, smart way. Um, and then I, I think batteries, there's a company called QuantumScape, which is delivering solid-state battery and a solid-state semiconductor battery. I think batteries are going to... I, I, just, I, just don't, I can't think of which part of our life which won't be impacted further by what is happening in semiconductor. And I think that there is a huge concern about lack of scaling. And I'm not concerned about that. I think semiconductor scaling may have stopped, but semiconductor innovation has not stopped. Thank you. Carver, any reaction to these many Um, topics? I think what you just said is is a key thing. We spent the uh, our little group at Caltech was was doing research on how you make efficient use of silicon back in uh, in the 70s and uh, nobody cared because if you just got to the next process node before your competitor you're way ahead of any fancy design that you could do and that went on long enough that uh, people basically adopted Yes, you get on the next process node when it comes up. And 
That means just use the design you've gotten, enlarge it and enrich it with the modules you've got and go to the next process node. And um, <clears throat> that's a strategy that paid off long enough that people forgot how to think about doing efficient use of silicon because it was so much more effective to just jump to the next process node. So the things we worried about back in the 70s are now starting to come back and focus. And, uh, it's really good to see it, but of course nobody remembers that we worked a lot of these problems in the 70s. Um, but then uh, if you look, and by the way, I agree what you, what you said about, about integrated optics. Uh, it is going on on CMOS. And um, it inherently has larger feature sizes than uh, electrons. Electrons are more susceptible to localization than light waves are. Uh, and so uh, the, the things you integrate into optics are different things. That, uh, for example, there's, uh, uh, you probably all know that there's <clears throat> uh, now possible to build resonators with cues in the, in the many decimal places. I think the last one I saw was 10 to the 14 or something, uh, I forget. But uh, just phenomenal uh, elements that can be used in wonderful ways. That, uh, I wouldn't rule out clever ways of, of generating light. Uh, they, there were little inklings of that maybe 10 or so years ago, and then that sort of went away. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, coherent light is difficult. Uh, Non-coherent, I think people have demonstrated. Yeah, but, you know, uh, there's cleverness to be applied, and I wouldn't, it's not going to be tomorrow. But uh, I think maybe there's something there. Uh, especially since you're putting another layer on for the integrated optics, then there's, there's things that could be, and I don't have a specific thing, but it feels like there could be something there. But then if you look further out, um, we actually do what uh, somebody from another planet would think of as a, a pretty stupid thing. Because we take a circuit and we hook together transistors with wires in order to make it digital. Well, Back in the 60s, when I was working with the Fairchild people, they um, would occasionally get a, a return transistor 
that had what they called popcorn noise. And uh, you'd just hook it up as an amplifier and it would have this random telegraph wave coming out, substantial current, you know, in the, in the milliamp range. Well, we, we looked into that. I worked with the Fairchild people and uh, turned out what was going on as there was a recombination center in the uh, depletion layer of the transistor. They were bipolar transistors back then. And um, right next to it, there was a trap. And when it would trap an electron, uh, it was a quiet transistor. But then when the electron would go away, there was a little path for recombination. And so uh, you got this recombination rate, which would go on and off, with a single electron. And this was in the 60s. So this was an accidental single electron transistor. So the thing that interesting about that is that this is something that is digital in the silicon, not because you hooked up a circuit to be digital. Now my, uh, my old colleague Ivan Sutherland is up at Portland State now and he's got a technology uh, where they use one flux quantum in a superconductor as a natural digital thing in the physics, not in the circuit. And he claims they have a way of doing logic with it and actually t transmitting signals on uh, a length of conductor I have a, I looked just quickly at it, but um, suppose that were to work out. Um, they're not as dense as transistors, but they're digital and non um, they they don't go away. What do you say there? Non-volatile? Non-volatile, thank you. In the physics. So that's interesting. Now you have to keep them at uh, uh, low temperature, but uh, in today's world, you know, the MRI business has caused the creation of refrigerators that keep things around 4 Kelvin for months, years, running 24-7. So it's no longer a big deal to keep things at superconducting temperatures. So somebody should look at that. It's a long shot. It'll be 20 years before it becomes a production technology that can compete with silicon in any way. But it's a very interesting story. Now, you have to be careful about how you count power because power at 4 Kelvin is 100 times more expensive, at least, than uh, power at room temperature. So, um, it, but there is an issue there of uh, having the digital part be in 
the physics. And um, I haven't seen too many people that thought you could make a single electron transistor. And the problem there is not the transistor. The problem is trying to take the signal any distance. So having a transmission line, which uh, Ivan claims they can do with uh, with the uh, superconducting flux quantum bits. Uh, very interesting idea. And so, you know, if I were looking forward more than 10 years, I would have a little group that was working with Ivan to figure that out because if there's anything there, there's bound to be a place for it somehow and uh, uh, energy is certainly a big issue and it's not really getting much better uh, so we're um, and of course the the saying used to be that uh, Andy Grove giveth and Bill Gates taketh away uh, <clears throat> uh, the uh, new, what people call AI, is really neural networks backpropagation, uh, which was a 30-year-old development, a bunch of it right here in San Diego. Jeffrey Hinton, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's um, largely mindless in its use of power. And there's a lot of things you could think of, but one of the things is that um, the brain does uh, computation way more than you can do with any of the biggest systems we have. And um, it runs on 20 watts with slow logic. So you look a little at what's going on there, and uh, the last time I talked about this was what Irwin's retirement party. Uh, the uh, dendritic trees of neurons are do what amounts to logic in an analog space. They have a very elaborate gain control system. So they actually can sort out, depending on the level of signals coming in, they can sort out basically arbitrary subsets of this exponential number of possibilities. So it's a thing that in its conception is vastly more energy efficient than any other computing structure I've ever seen. And that's not because it's the slow goo that neurons are made out of. It's because it's an idea that is extraordinarily powerful. And I tried making one out of existing technology when I was doing this stuff back in the early 90s. And I was unable to make progress. Uh, I don't know anybody that's building one now. Uh, Kwabana Bonin at Stanford 
has some ideas about it, and I don't know how far that's gone uh, in terms of realization. But there are computing structures that we haven't thought of because the transistors have been so damned good. And there's a, it's the same trap that got people into the, to the stick with the next process node. They're so good that in the short term you can't beat it. And so then people who think about beating it get weeded out because they're not contributing because it doesn't get there in time for the next product cycle. Perfectly understandable, but there needs to be some look ahead in terms of computing structures that have in their physics computation that we haven't thought about or haven't gone far enough with. So, I, I, I think just picking up on that point, if you, if you look at how neural networks are implemented right now, uh, it's using a von Neumann architecture, which is incredibly energy inefficient. You've got to go fetch, store. And uh, I, I actually have a little bit of a sense I've invested in two companies that are using magnetic effects. It actually goes back to your uh, Ivan Sutherland's work in a different way, using magnetic effects where you have a resistor and you can change the value of that resistor as, uh, as more signal goes through that resistor. Um, and, and therefore, it sort of begins to um, imitate a dendrite. So yeah, I think it's got to be... Uh, there is no way that using uh, the current GPT-4, they're saying, has 100 trillion parameters. 100 trillion parameters. Uh, there is no way that the, if, if they recruited... 30% of compute in the world that they could implement, uh, scale that much further. So uh, the comp compute structure has to change and it has to be physical. And I may add, add a couple points to that comment raised by Sanji that when we look now at the on-device AI, to your point on the number of billions of, of parameters at play, and then we look at the training side and then we look at the inference side. So the training on huge, massive data sets in the cloud but then a lot of progress being made on the hardware design targeting power-efficient AI architectures. So how do you do the quantization? How are you looking at the critical time paths? So a lot of very uh, collaborative, I would say cross-disciplinary research. And I think that's one of the interesting points I think you're making about you look at the, the physics side and the, the semiconductor side, and then you look at the digital side. And what was okay to be separate made sense for a long period of time economically and pragmatically but to solve these new kind of problems that are being posed, such as how much uh, AI can I do on a, uh, a, you know, a, a handheld device that's going to charge once a day when I'm, I'm needing to apply more and more AI locally, then all of a sudden there's this focus on, okay, if power is the primary metric and you're not just chasing things, then you can simplify um, some of the prioritization. You can simplify some of the quantization and say, I, I can still achieve very good performance in this the kind of reduced state space. So it, it kind of, in my view, it's an interesting application where mathematicians are involved. We, we have semiconductor teams involved. We have algorithm PhDs involved. And they're all kind of working jointly to say, okay, we need a better net solution to this really important commercial problem. Yeah, it's a, it's, we've gotten to an interesting point where 
the big networks now, uh, there's a whole lot of power that goes into just using them. Uh, not uh, training is off scale, out of control, but then just using them costs a lot of power, and a lot of people are doing it. Uh, Terry Sanowski's journal, uh, the latest issue, uh, just came out that has uh, papers by a number of us that sort of look back over 30 years since backpropagation started and, and since uh, we started trying to make neurons in, in silicon. And, and um, uh, one of the comparisons I did in there is for in the application space where you're just using the already trained network. Um, what happened if you did the, what you're doing in a, when you just evaluate the put inputs to the network and evaluate what it says, um, what you're doing is you're faking up uh, combinations of analog signals with digital parameters. So, uh, what happened if you just go ahead and do it analog? Well, there's a factor of 10 to the 4 in, in energy. And uh, it's not that it's, it's a slam dunk because you have to get back to where, you know, that the technology hasn't been evolved to be good at analog. But then, you know, if you're going to be good at RF, then that's an analog problem. And, and so we're not, because we're not at the point where a single electron is a bit, we're still using a bunch of electrons to make a bit. And then you have the statistics of the bunch of electrons, which you think of as noise if you're doing analog stuff. Uh, so, um, there's, there's a thing to be worked there, which is worth at least a factor of 10 to the 4 in energy, uh, and uh, not that much in, in silicon area, but considerable in silicon area. So, so there's, there's rethinking of things when you have something where you have everybody on their cell phone evaluating the neural network. Uh, now power matters a lot more than it does if you have a data center. Right. I think, I mean, actually the audience supplied 20 questions and we boiled it down to eight and we're not done with the first. So um, I'll, I'll just sort of nudge this a, a little bit forward. So I, if I can summarize, I feel like there's a lot that's exciting. There's essentially beyond everything, as we say. Um, and it's beyond more. It's beyond von Neumann. Uh, there's the, the gap between digital and analog, you know, the, the raw device. There's materials, 2D materials, and so on, that looks great, superconducting, uh, super quantum, 3D. Um, huge stack, really, that is yet to explore. And I feel that the message for younger people is, you know, Moore's Law is dead is an opportunity, if you, if you even believe that statement. And so um, I was going to ask, 
you had to think of one thing that keeps you awake at night about the future of this amazing industry or domain that's you know matured over the last half century or more, what is that thing that keeps you awake at night, if any? Or is it just daisies and sunshine <laughs> looking 20 years out? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll kind of offer some quick thoughts on that. I mean, for me, it's a little bit... When you're looking at the multitude of problems and the reality of um, investment and, and how are you able to tackle something that's economically meaningful and combine that with the, the long-term foundations, right? So it kind of goes back to the point that, that Carver made incredibly well about if, if the next you know, obvious step is the easiest way to get a benefit, then you don't have to do the harder stuff. And then, so what kind of keeps me up a little bit is then our ability to still foundationally invest in the harder stuff. And so we've been uh, at Qualcomm working very closely with UCSD as a great example on when we look to the future of technology and still doing the really hard stuff that doesn't immediately obviously have you know, hundreds of billions of, of applications or consumer scale um, revenue opportunity. So how do you still do the hard science, the lab code stuff, the deep simulations that when you're working hard at two in the morning? And so for me, it's a little bit about getting that chemistry right between the foundational research and then coupling that to the future applications. And so there's a lot of exciting, vibrant examples of, of how the industry is changing, but we still have to keep focusing on the fundamentals because those are the building blocks that will solve the really, you know, I would say more foundational challenges. Um, if, if you imagine a value stack in technology and you imagine it as a 20-story building, and there's no question the VLSI designers are in the dungeon and the Google engineers are sitting in the penthouse, right? That, I think, is the fundamental problem in semiconductor. We have not figured out a business model which uh, compensates us for the R&D risk capital investment and... I think the reason is that we get too focused on solving component-level problems and not system-level problems. You get rewarded for solving system-level issues. And, um, and the closer you are to consumer and the end problem, the more you get rewarded. And I think what, what keeps me awake is right now, if you went to any university, um, you will have a tough time getting enough graduates who are interested in semiconductor um, to, to, to start research of the kind that Carver really is right to say. We went through this phase where VLSI became completely um, automated and you press a button and uh, certain lithography gets printed. Now we have to go back and rethink from ground up, from physics up, a lot of computational structures. We have nobody. Um, we have we have nobody uh, left uh, to do that work, and I think the reason is because we don't have a business model that rewards them. And uh, yeah, academic reward models, etc., novelty. Yeah. But um, before passing it to Carver, I want to inject uh, Dean Pisano's online question, which is very related. He asks. How do you see engineering and science interacting and changing one another as we see microelectronics evolving into the future? So I think this speaks to kind of how do we manage this incredible explosion, this Cambrian explosion of possibilities for the near term even, and then the investment 
question. So yeah, and I, I would just say maybe one word answer was the iterative part, right? That there's science needs to be iterative with engineering, right? So engineering is very pragmatic, and science can be very deep. And so how do you get that chemistry of those iterative steps where you're jointly putting things together? Yeah, but I, I was talking with uh, Gert Kahnberg uh, earlier today, and uh, he's pointing out that we went through the golden age where uh, we were doing uh, neuromorphic uh, circuits and systems, and, and we had access to fab, uh, and uh, uh, the fab was uh, easily understood. So uh, the conceptual base was, was reasonable. It was rich enough to do interesting things, but it was limited enough that you didn't have to do everything all over again, including your thinking about devices, when you went to the next process node. And we went through probably maybe 20 years that way. Yeah, probably and, ten, uh, 10 transitions. Yeah. yeah, and it was the the golden age from a research point of view because you, uh, Moses would turn the thing in a couple of weeks or at most a month, and so everybody was actually producing <laughs> real artifacts and finding out what they really did and realizing that your simulation only got it right a fraction of the time and there were things that went on that you hadn't anticipated and aren't built into the, you know, the things about simulation is they they tell you all about the things you thought to put in. <laughs> and the things you didn't think to put in, of course, that's where the bugs always were. So that's a wonderful lesson that we get from real life in, in those days. And now uh, Gert tells me it's very hard that the getting into fab has to go through some big pile of software that somebody has copyrighted. And, and by the time you're done, it's very hard to see what's down there and to see how it's related to what you want to do. And so we're, we're in a... Now the... As you pointed out, the uh, optical stuff is now at the, the in the in the golden age that we were in in the uh, in the seventies, uh, and uh, and they're doing fantastic stuff. I mean, unbelievable uh, quantum leaps in in capability, uh, and uh, and that's going to pay off big time. Is paying off already and much more to come. Uh, and it's, it's, it's what you said, the, the ability to actualize in real physical form the idea that you had, the concept, uh, is, is priceless in educating students how to innovate. And if you can't do that, you're in the mercy of a, a, a big simulator, which is a big pile of stuff that you don't understand, and and um, and the limits as to what you can do on the silicon itself, and and uh, so uh, somehow that means that the kind of innovation that we're talking about isn't going to happen through that channel. 
And so I see it happening right now in the, in the uh, integrated optics just because you have that connection. The same person that has the concept goes all the way to a physical device and tests it and figures out what it's doing. And, and that connection you can't lose or you end up with specialists. And you don't do innovation very much with specialists. On the other hand, you know, 30, 40 generations of scaling, literally, have, have um, you know, resulted in these system complexities that are incredibly hard to, to manage. So the actualization and the experimentation, I think, is something to worry about, as you point out. Um, so I think this does, if we play back the tape, you know, surface a number of things that actually we, we should be worried about. And there are challenges to solve, whether it's investment or uh, teaching of young students and um, ability to hold things in our hands, which is something that the, even the U.S. government has highlighted as a national priority recently. Um, there, there are a bunch of young folks who have put themselves in the back of the room. Um, and some of their careers will last not just 20 plus years from now, but you know, 40 years from now, they will be still in the workforce. Uh, if you could give them a blessing or three wishes, what, what would you wish for them? Uh, you know, based on incredibly successful careers and mentoring thousands or hundreds of, of young people. Yeah, maybe I'll start with a few comments. I'll say one is to um, evolve, iterate, and grow. So it's really about uh, are you learning as much as you can from your colleagues as you're contributing and learning? So you get out what you put in. So you have to put in a lot uh, so that you have fruitful engagements, but it's important also to learn broadly. So the opportunity to, to go deep in school and then continue that depth, but then to broaden yourself in terms of the technology exploration combined with the business opportunity side. And so in my view, it's about really continuing to be a lifelong learner and recognizing that that learning does require still the, the, the deep technical knowledge. So many of us, you know, I started my career before and we had AI courses when I was in grad school and people were like, oh, I'm just maybe going to audit that one. It's not super important, you know, to your point on recursive neural networks and backpropagation um, it was like, yeah, but that's not really super relevant. I'm going to focus on something else. But you can still learn that at any point. And I think now, even with so much more material being available online and whether it's you know, Coursera or whether it's information from recorded lectures even at UCSD, there's so much more stuff to be a, a lifelong learner. And so my advice is to be resilient in these, these kind of challenges that are and, and kind of obstacles that are going to come your way and recognize that those are also these opportunities to kind of learn new things and adapt and, and kind of keep growing as a person in terms of your approach to it all. Um, I, I, the blessing I would give, as, as I do my three sons, is may your skill set not become obsolete in your working life. Um, if you are a minor in Virginia, uh, learning to code in Python is not that easy to do at the age of 45. And so... There's no question, I think it builds on what John said, uh, there's no question that uh, the change in skill set is going to be very, very large. And uh, what we consider to be our skill set is fragile as a timestamp. And so what John suggests, which is that you adapt, 
is going to be very, very important. Um, when faced with difficulty, uh, U.S. Army has done a lot of work. Uh, 70% of people perform badly. 14% do the same. And 7% actually do better. And there's been a lot of research. People call this positive psychology. Why is it that 7% of people, when they lose job, when they, they're, uh, they have a car accident or somebody, some loved person passes away, faced with very difficult circumstances, why is it that 7% of the population actually performs better? And, and I think it's worth, it's, it's, I, I urge you look into this yourself, but uh, what they found is people who are hungry enough to want to risk and confident enough to actually take the risk, I end up being successful, which actually reminds me of an old joke, which is, which is, um, is this guy prays every morning, devout, devoutly, good Lord, please let me win the lottery. And he does this for seven years. One day, a good Lord appears, and he says, will you at least please go buy a lottery ticket? So, <laughs> so the, the, the thing is, it's, it's, you certainly have to have big dreams, but you also need to think about the practical reality of accomplishing that. And the way to accomplish, accomplish that is to, is, is to take those risks in life, which are incredibly uncomfortable. I think becoming uncomfortable as a cultural value is going to be important in your lives. And actually, uh, a few of us have had the privilege of hearing Carver speak to young people at his lecture yesterday and at the banquet uh, last night. But, um, you know, you have a fresh set of faces. What would you wish for them or what should they be taking away? It's difficult to think differently. But if you're part of the herd, uh, it's a herd. So um, the people who are not afraid to think differently uh, have a harder time. And I'm sure that's the 7% you're talking about. But because we face this future which is evolving very rapidly in directions that we can't foresee, uh, which change, I mean, just, uh, just the, the emergence of uh, big programs and data sets in what's now called AI, the neural network thing, um, to really changed everything in, com- in computing. Uh, not just computing, I see all my colleagues in, in every branch of science now using those techniques, just like you would use any other computer algorithm. It's just a toolbox that's expanded, expanded at the cost of a huge power expenditure. Uh, so uh, there's, in my mind, there's an emerging need for people to think in new ways. Uh, but it's not popular. So um, uh, in a way, 
being part of that 7% means that it may be generative of difficult circumstances. <laughs> so by choice, uh, that's the trade-off you have, is that if you think differently, um, it won't be as easy a life as settling into a nice job description. That's, uh, so uh, that's, that's where you are. And um, I think that's the trade-off. And if I may, there were several inputs uh, from folks who basically asked the same question. They, they said, Dr. Mead, what would you tell your younger self? And it ranged to as you became an assistant professor to as you were a 20-year-old. Um, what would you tell your younger self, if anything, in retrospect? Well, I can, I can answer a slightly different question, okay. but related question. Mm -hmm. um, the fundamental things in physics that I've been interested in since I was a, an undergraduate student, I never felt comfortable putting forth or really uh, working on seriously until I became emeritus. And therefore, <laughs> then I had the freedom to, to go for it uh, because I didn't have a downside, and there's nothing they could do to me. Uh, and um, I think, looking back, that was prudent, because I think the reality was that uh, the things I'm doing now wouldn't have been tolerated at all uh, in those days. So it's a, it's a delicate thing. I am very pleased with the things I've been able to do, and they certainly have been thinking differently than the herd. Uh, and they've been much closer to, to realization, which has been good because you get the, the acid test of making it work in the world, and that's a very, very important thing. So I would, I would think that Young people would want to be in an in a applied discipline uh, because you get that feedback for making it work in the real world. And looking back, I think that was a very important part of, of my evolution in thinking, just the discipline of making stuff work in the world. So if I were you, I wouldn't get caught in a thing where that wasn't part of the equation. Great. Thank you. Um, so the topic today nominally was the Vilasai Revolution, Echoes and Futures. So, um, you know, this is the book, right? <laughs> um, I, I was able to find it, uh, you know, just in this other bookshelf. And um, I think for most of us in the room, this book was always on a nearby bookshelf, if not on the desk. And how the VLSI revolution was launched by the class at Caltech, this book, and the Moses service that Carver mentioned, the MPW shuttle, is quite well known. And the question is, today, do we need a VLSI revolution 2.0? Is there a different class, a different book, a different service that lets people actualize and 
touch their implemented ideas. What would that look like, if so? I'm sorry if that was poorly worded, but... Well, we're seeing it with the, with the integrated optics stuff. Yes. It's, it's upon us now, and that's fantastic. It's wonderful, because at least there's one thing that's just gone gangbusters. And so we know it hasn't ceased to be that you can have a thing like that. Uh, within the, the integrated circuit design itself, uh, the, the innovation has uh, kind of been pushed into the corners because you have this great big thing and it's just chugging away. And uh, it's paid off so many times that you just turn the crank one more turn. And uh, that does not bring forth the kind of innovative energy that you had in, in the 70s and, and the 80s. And, uh, but we have it now in the, in the integrated optics, and, and uh, that uh, we had it in the, well, in the 60s, 70s, 80s in, the, in uh, lasers and Amnon Yarev's uh, uh, initiatives that turned into a whole field of, of um, quantum electronics, uh, probably the way to, to say it. Um, that was on a big roll, too. Uh, so th these things keep happening, I think, as long as there's at least one of them, so that people don't give up on the concept that there can be a golden age of invention and innovation and, and realization and real things that then go out and change the world. Uh, as long as at least one of those is happening, uh, you can believe that they will be the next one. But when they stop happening and you think, oh, all it is is turning this great big crank and it grinds one more time around, uh, you really don't want young people to come to a belief that, well, that was the last one. Right. That would be, that would be my nightmare. Yeah. The, the, the thing I would like. That the, the, the base or the foundation is just too accreted and unwieldy to even attach anything to or integrate yeah. anything with. Yeah. I think that's the fear. Um, any comments from you gentlemen? Or? Uh, I, I, I would say we continue to solve in VLSI. Uh, in VLSI we're wasting huge billions of dollars solving non-economic problems. Going to one micron is not an economic, uh, Moore's law was an economic law. And, and we, we're spending, I, 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 uh, the last fab I built was 20 billion. So uh, I, I think it, it's just crazy. It's, I think we should be spending our money where we can solve vast number of non-structured problems um, with as Carver says, with physical solutions that match the physical properties of what is needed to solve the problem. Packaging is a, is a big place I would put a lot of effort in. Um, is this, I, I know there's national pride involved in having one nanometer on our shores and whatnot, 
and and I, I understand why that, that is important certain applications and I'm not it's just that I think it's disproportionately important in just that the drug that we've got used to that drug isn't working anymore but we're still spending a lot of money on it I, I think uh, in magnetic development in uh, optical development in uh, display development in all of these, there are probably 10 different things that I can think of. Erwin and I are involved in a company which is using chips to do um, separating exosomes. I think uh, biology is going to require a huge amount of um, uh, silicon design. And what I would like to see is a prototyping facility like Moses, uh, but so that in, in semiconductor learning cycle determines the pace of your innovation. Mm-hmm. And, and what is happening is, uh, look, in, in one nanometer, uh, three nanometer, uh, it takes about six months to get a wafer back. Well, guess what? You're not going to learn a lot in one year. If we can do that in two weeks, we can learn a lot. So what I would like to see is prototype centers to allow people to innovate and experiment at low cost um, in 10 different areas other than just scaling um, lithography. Well, you know, it's interesting that Moses still exists. And so um, there's no fundamental reason why we couldn't have that kind of service that you just mentioned. But um, it's gotten all of this stuff between the designer and the silicon and you can't see through it yeah i think the hyper consolidation there's only really two fabs maybe three fabs there's only two eda companies i mean the ip and export control and other obstacles are are just and the cost which i think gert probably was referring to when he spoke with you they're they're absolutely stifling today. So um, we'll have to obviously solve that somehow. But actually, that leads me a bit to this um, other question that came up, which was that Carver, I think, very famously predicted the emergence of the commercial EDA industry. He also predicted the disaggregated structure into Fabulous and Foundry. And so I checked this morning, Cadence and Synopsys each had a market cap of around $56 billion. And you add them together and you've got the market cap of an IBM or an Intel or even close to a Qualcomm. So first of all, I'd like to say Carver nailed it decades ago. And second, has the right thing happened? That's the question. Um, or some sort of, is some sort of course correction needed on this trajectory we're on to ensure sort of better health of the semiconductor design companies and the manufacturing companies even. Any thoughts on Well, you know, the, for me, there's uh, signs of hope mm-hmm. because there are foundries that do integrated optics and they do fast turnaround and they do quality stuff. Uh, who would have guessed? Because... Integrated optics was a toy when that started, but there was a model for from Moses and, and TSMC and whatever. There's a model of how it can work, and so if it's just a different medium, but there's a model of how the whole thing works, 
it's a lot easier than if it's the first one, like getting Moses started was, which is, you know, a huge heavy lifting because none of the pieces existed. And so it was, you know, building it from scratch. So uh, I think that's a hopeful sign that we have uh, the, the notion of, of foundries is uh, well known and, and there are, uh, and for things at the scale of optics, which aren't, you know, these billion dollar fabs, um, uh, there have emerged businesses that do that one way or another, and I have no idea how much the government did and whatever the politics For is. For sure. Yeah, the Wolf Speed, Corvos, the 150-millimeter uh, or 200-millimeter wafer sizes. I, yeah. I mean, you see a lot more agility and diversity yeah. available, and it's commercially successful. Yeah, you can get enough commercial success going that that it isn't just pie in the sky and... and and kids playing in, in the universities. So uh, uh, that... And maybe I'll just also, it's a, kind of about the gearing, the timelines, right? So we talk of this, when there's this step, like the Moore's Law, of self-fulfilling prophecy of the peri- periodicity of the steps, and then kind of recognizing that many different industries are moving at slightly different, you know, the car industries, famously, you get a new model every five years, maybe four, maybe six, depending on the market competition in that particular segment. Um, and you've seen some, some you know, even uh, companies stretching that timeline a little bit as they're focusing on a different approach per vehicle. But that's an example where there was a well-acknowledged thing. We're going to take a bigger step, and then we're going to take a series of smaller steps, because that's the only thing that kind of made sense. And we see then, um, when we look at cloud, and we look at edge, and we look at the point of this end-to-end value creation, right? Solving a systems-level problem, as Sanjay was saying, that's more economically meaningful if you're uh, able to monetize that more directly uh, with a certain scale of invest once, and then you can just keep kind of reselling the, that end-to-end solution. And so I think when we look at, at VLSI and the underpinnings of hardware and technology and, and what are we solving on communications, what are we solving on compute, what are we solving on how that gets applied to medicine, how does it get applied to to you know, automotive, how does it apply to future fields like augmented virtual reality that are evolving incredibly quickly as we speak now, there's a recognition there's going to be a plurality of types of devices, right? Is it about virtual reality? Is it about a lightweight augmented you know, reality glasses that's very um, almost imperceptible that it has compute capabilities? And then all of a sudden you bring in, well, some of that compute is distributed. So the software design of how the hardware functionality is partitioned, and that can be done more dynamically. And so in my view, the important thing is that the kind of bigger steps can still occur, and then certain of those kind of node shifts and that kind of combining of technologies, it does need to match the impedance and the, the periodicity of the target market. And I think that's where we've seen the, the race for consumer scale with a web application uh, how quickly can I, I, and we always, when universities ask me, hey, should we have all our students write an app that does some interesting little video game? I'm like, no, if you're a university student, you should be learning the hard stuff and really kind of building those foundations. So I think it's that perspective of of the acknowledging there's going to be multiple parallel 
um, intersecting timelines. And then if you bring up the structure of the semiconductor industry and, and how things are currently partitioned, well, that's also always changing. And you know, new companies are, are being formed that have unique technical capabilities. And, and so I think there's not necessarily going to be this one perfect solution. It's really going to be about a recognition. It's a hard problem. Uh, obviously, we're recognizing that internationally, it's, it's, it's also well-recognized that this is important for national security. It's important for technology independence. It's important for GDP growth. And so I, I do feel there's been a lot of um, kind of relearning some of those lessons and that important to get the kind of long time frame right. And the only way to win in the long term is also to win in the intermediate term and to some degree make sure you're not you know, hurting yourself in terms of your ability to execute in the short term. Uh, if, if, if I could just go back very quickly to the EDA co- uh, part of your question, um, which was, uh, is the EDA, has the EDA industry turned out right? Well, it's consolidated. There are two guys. They have duopoly. Um, th- there's no question in my mind. They have decided they will capture 3% of the revenue of the semiconductor industry. That's it. They have decided. You know how it is. They have volume purchase agreements. All, essentially what they're doing, they're looking at your revenue every year, and they're determining what's the 3% of it, and they believe that's their natural right. And, and that's what they get. And if you look at their market cap combined, uh, it's actually something like 7 8%. They get higher multiple. There's more certainty. You know why? They don't, they don't care if your chips sell or not. They're going to get their 3%. Because the tool business is always higher multiple than the diagnostic and, 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 and market business, right? I would say, have they done right by the industry? Probably. Only because if I look at software industry, it's so awful. Uh, I, the, the, I mean, I've I mean, got my students in the audience. Well, no, I know, but Char- Charlie, Charlie and I uh, would do chips, and we will find out that there was a bug and guess what? We would rev our chips faster than the software guys could rev and, and go through the bug reduction cycle and all of that. Because now I think there is a lot more mechanistic ways because of open software and because of cloud where software can be de- developed better. But remember, we worked in a software where it was embedded software. It wasn't internet software where you can do canary mine, uh, canary releases. We had to make the software work before we released it. So our software threshold was much higher. And I did not see any tools to make software faster and better and testing faster and more deterministic, more formal ways of testing. But guess what? VLSI design got much, much further. So I, I, as much as I don't like the fact that they actually, the worst thing I like about, don't like about them is they, they, they kill the innovation from small companies. Th- what they're doing is for small companies, you still have to pay a million dollars to buy a tool. And that I don't like. But I, I do like what they've done for the industry otherwise. Let me just drink from this mug for a moment. <laughs> but there's nobody here. I know the two CEOs, they're not here, so I can say what I... <laughs> no, this is a DARPA-funded project oh, okay. right. on open source EDA. Um, that Qualcomm was a part of, actually, a subcontractor to UCSD. So let, let's try to um, wrap up. Uh, one small comment is, um, yeah, 3% used to be 2%, and it's become 3 Oh, yeah, and, and it'll go to and, 4 and, and the consolidation and maturation of these industries, the 60-year trajectory of Moore's Law, I mean, this is 
almost inevitable what's, what's happened. I just wondered if there was a miracle solution that you could propose in real time. Um, you've got a range of folks from Erwin Jacobs to uh, Charlie Persico, Marty Cooper, uh, Dean, Peter Osbeck, and then young people at the back. Um, any parting thoughts on the topic? You know, the, we had a VLSI revolution. We're living it. There's this incredible long tail and cloudy future in so many dimensions. Any, take, any parting thoughts for the audience? You know, what should people go home and think about? I mean, I guess I would just, uh, that it's okay that it's complicated, right? And I think there's that reality that there's no simple solution to this interaction between technology progress and application use case and, and government relative to industry and public-private partnership. I think what's important is to keep trying creatively to solve problems that have impact. And I think that kind of boils down to even um, finding an interesting, we were talking to some of the students just before today, I, just before this talk uh, started, on uh, you know thesis topics and what are they focused on. And, and if you're focusing on something hard and interesting, then you're doing your part because it's that training even how to solve a problem and recognizing there's going to be 30 or 40 or 50 problems in your future and they're only going to get more multidimensional, bring in the economics, bring in timelines, bring in economic realities, macro conditions. And so it's that perspective of being resilient and do your homework and um, that mixture of keeping your head down and at the same time looking up. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd just add that... Uh... Where we're headed now uh, in computing is solving unstructured problems. So we have huge number of uh, sensors with vast amount of data, and we're trying to make real-time decisions um, uh, on, uh, at, at the edge on that data. And that requires a complete new evolution of sensors with all the things that we talked about, magnetics, RF, um, and the entire spectrum. Uh, one, of the, one of the things, uh, ex- example I could give you is that when you have um, a back surgery, you have at the moment 70% chance of success. And part of the reason is that uh, there's no, th- there are lots of um, nerves uh, along your spinal cord and uh, you necessarily take a lot of care not to hurt those nerves and therefore the sur- surgery is not very successful. But those nerves absorb a different frequency than fat does, than mus- muscles do. If we could have sensors which can isolate all of these things, then we could make that surgery um, 80%, 90% successful. So I, I see complete explosion in sensors. We are now beginning to interact with a much more complex world in our computation, and we're trying to automate it. So that I, I, I feel that that sensor world is going to explode. And, and, um, and, and, of course, if you want to make sense of it, then you'll have to, you can't process it using von Neumann. You'll have to use some AI kind of structure. And if you're going to use some AI kind of structure, then you need to become more power efficient and more dense. Those are things that I see uh, looking forward. So first off, gentlemen, thank you all very, very much. John, we know it's very busy for you, and we're grateful you spent some time with us. Sanjay, I know you're very busy, too. And, of course, uh, Professor Mead, it's so great to have you with us. You know everyone's enjoying that you're here. Andrew, thanks for uh, sitting on the hot seat. You're the one that had to make all this work. And, uh, you know, you wrestled, uh, you herded the cats pretty well, I think. What do you think? Yeah? All right. So let's have a round of applause. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. 
For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.